Let's pray. Oh God, as we uh, want to engage the scripture lesson, we ask for your guidance. We, we pray for this, O oh God, that in the uh, reading and the hearing of a passage that with the addition of your Holy Spirit, that uh, it becomes the gospel and it buries itself deep down into the depths of our souls and begins a work inside of us that produces a yield of your kingdom. And for some, a, a, a tenfold, a twenty even for some a hundredfold, as your Spirit works through all of our lives. We're grateful, God, whether we're here in this sanctuary or whether we are watching from home and worshiping there, uh, we ask for your blessings, and we pray this now. Amen. Last week, I mentioned uh, a book, Skipping Christmas, and the author of the book is John Grisham. Uh, some of you are familiar with the, the majority of his works. Normally, they involve some aspect of the law, maybe a story that's tied to a, a, a lawyer or a character, or maybe to a court case. But every now and then, he'll venture off the norm, and he'll pick up what I call just a feel-good story. And one of his first efforts in doing this was back in the late 90s, I think it was 99, a book called Skipping Christmas. Uh, it's a story that involves the Cranks, Nora and Laura Crank, or Luther Crank. Uh, you might be familiar with that in the movie form. It's the, the movie uh, Christmas with the Cranks. And the story is something similar to uh, the Cranks have a daughter, Blair. Blair is being shipped off to, uh, to Peru to work for the, the Peace Corps for a two-year stint. And Luther, the dad, has this great idea that instead of investing what turns out to be about 6 to 7% of his annual income into Christmas, that they can redirect that money and he and Nora can go on a Caribbean cruise uh, that, that leave on Christmas Day on in into the new year. The problem is that he lives in the community, Riverside community, where everybody, I mean, they, they go all out for Christmas. The decorations, the parties, the whole nine yards, and, and their community in the, in the story is known for, for what they do during Christmas. And so the cranks are met with all this resistance with the community, different people. They don't understand what they're doing. And to make matters worse, uh, on Christmas morning, they get a call from Blair, who has landed in Miami, to say, in seven hours, I'm going to be home, and by the way, I've got my new fiancé, and all I've done is describe to him how wonderful Christmas is at our house. And so they're scrambling to have a party, to, to buy direct, and it's Christmas Eve, so the stores are closing, there's, there's no trees for them to buy, I mean, it's just a train wreck of things. Now, it ends, you know, as you would imagine, it's a feel-good story, so it ends well. And about every, I think, maybe three or four years, I'll pick this up and I'll read it again, uh, normally in November or so, uh, just because I like the story. And this year when I was reading it, about halfway through, I asked myself, what if God skipped Christmas? I mean, the cranks wanted to skip it, and, you know, it, it didn't turn out well. I mean, if, if God skipped Christmas, does that actually mean anything for us? Because uh, we put a, a great deal into Advent and preparing for Christmas, and what if some of that just went away? Does it really matter to us? And so each week during the sermon, uh, what, what I'm going to do, and in some services what John and I are going to do, we're, we're going we're to tackle that question through a different gospel lesson that deals with the birth of Christ. Last week, the Magi. This week, we're going to look at Joseph. Joseph is the central character, at least in the beginning, uh, in Matthew's gospel, because Matthew tells the story about the birth of Christ through the lens of Joseph. 
his side of the house. Luke does it through the lens of Mary and her side of the house. But in Matthew, what we discover is that Joseph is engaged to Mary, but there's a major problem. Mary is pregnant, and she's pregnant with a child that doesn't belong to Joseph. Now, in order to understand the magnitude of this, we really have to understand what it was like for, for in the ancient world, particularly in the, in the days of Jesus, what it, the whole engagement process. It didn't happen the way that we do, maybe where someone might go and talk to a person's side of that family and, and, and propose with a ring and, and things of that nature. They followed a, a three-step process. The first process was what we would call engagement through defining the terms. Normally two families, sometimes it would be their parents. Many times they would uh, employ an official matchmaker to the community. And, and what they would do is the two, the two families would define the terms of what it would like for them to come together, either through a son on one area or for one family or a daughter for another. Often they didn't know each other. It was an arranged type marriage. This idea of marrying for love is a very late endeavor in the history of humanity, maybe about 200 years old. But for the, from the beginning, 99% of the marriages involved some level of a deal. And they would define the terms, and then they would shake on it. That's stage one. Stage two is after they, they, after they shook and they defined the terms and everything was, you know, payments might have been made, gifts given, then it would become something very official. That's why some uh, versions of, of the scripture lesson actually says that they were betrothed. That's the ratification of the terms that were identified. And, and upon, in stage two, it's official. And so all the rules or the laws that would apply to a marriage couple, they would imply, they, they would apply to Mary and Joseph. And they would be in this stage for about maybe a year or so. It'd be just long enough in order for Joseph to either to, to build some type of dwelling where, where he and Mary would live. Often, it was a side room to his parents. So think about that. Your in-laws. You'd live with them. <laughs> yeah, some of you, I see the faces. It's all right. I mean, we, we know, we, you know. But it was official for him. So much so that uh, if Joseph died during this time, Mary would be considered a widow. But Mary didn't know, and it's, it, her family didn't know exactly when the ceremony would take place. It just there would be a day when Joseph would show up on the horizons with, with his family, and they would go and get Mary and, and some of her family, and they would all come back to, to Joseph's house, and then they would enter into stage three, the actual marriage. Ceremony after ceremony, they would consummate the marriage, and, and then they would begin their life together. Some of you might be familiar with Matthew 25. That's a parable that Jesus told where they're the, the bridesmaids and they have, they have their lamps and it says don't run out of oil because you don't know the day that's coming when, when the husband, the bridegroom's going to come and he's going to take you. You've got to be ready. Mary didn't know. In the passage, they're in stage two. Haven't consummated the marriage, but everything is binding as if they were in stage three. And so the struggle, the problem, 
is that Mary's pregnant, which would have been grounds for divorce. Now, Deuteronomy 22 tells us that one of the options that Joseph had is that he could have outed Mary in front of the community and and brought her out in front of all the community leaders outside the city, and then eventually they would have stoned her to death. The passage tells us that Joseph is a just man. He's a righteous man. He's also a gracious person. And so he didn't want to out her in front of the community because it wouldn't have just been Mary. It would have been Mary's family. It would have been everybody that would be associated with Mary. And he didn't want to do that publicly. So he's looking for a way discreetly, quietly. And then something really interesting happens. God intervened in the form of a a dream, a vision. With a big, don't do it. Now in the vision, in the dream, he gets the why, the reason why, says that the child she's carrying is from God, and, which means it's safe to assume that without this intervention, Joseph would have divorced her. Now often when we read this passage, we want to chase all these theological rabbit trails and these different philosophies about was Mary a perpetual virgin forever, and, or, or is singleness better than marriage? And, and the truth is, the Bible just doesn't go down those roads. Really not, doesn't even take it up. Because there's sometimes where it talks about singleness and it being good, and sometimes it talks about marriage being good, and we do know that 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 Mary had other children, Jesus had brothers. And so if we're not careful, we can miss the larger story here. Or at least the larger issue, which is can God break into the world in a way that's outside of the normal? Now, there are some things, many things that happen outside of the norm all the time. And as difficult as they are to explain, what we have to at least at some level be comfortable with is that the Bible is not concerned with often explaining how it happened as it is to why it happened. I was uh, speaking at another church, it's probably about, I guess, maybe three or four weeks ago, and and one of the questions that came up involved the different creeds and the aspects of the, the Apostles' Creed. And, and I said this sort of jokingly, uh, offhandedly, and I said, well, the first person who ever struggled with the part of the creed born of the Vir- Virgin Mary, do you know who that person was? It was Joseph. So much so that there had to be an intervention from God for him to get on board. And actually, Matthew took a big risk I mean, at the time of the writing of the gospel, there were all these stories, definitely in Greek mythology, where there are different heroes or heroines that, that were, were considered conceived from an intervention from a deity or a god. And so surely Matthew, with his staunch Jewish perspective on everything in the world, would hardly invent such a thing or copy it from someone else unless he really believed it. I mean, wouldn't Matthew be opening up his gospel and that, to that level opening up Christianity to the sneers of its opponents who would often state an obvious alternative, namely that Mary was unfaithful. And so the larger issue is, can God break into someone's time and space that is different from the normal? 
So I ask myself, when I read this passage, is this some, I mean, is this, does this story really matter? I mean, if God skipped this part, does it really make that big of a difference? But I would argue that it certainly does. Because this story sits inside of the light of God's activity of redemption. I think that's what you prayed in your prayer. Beginning in the Old Testament, culminating in the life of Jesus, His death, eventually His resurrection. So that what people perceive is that God is with them. Emmanuel. God is with us. And so what we see is that this is the God and this is the Jesus whose story Matthew will now set before us if we were to, to, to read the rest of the gospel. This is the God and this is Jesus who comes to us still today when human possibilities have run out, offering new and startling ways forward in fulfillment of His promises by His powerful love and His grace. If we were going to change the sermon title, then uh, maybe we would say the gospel of God being in the plan B business. I mean, what do you do in your life when it doesn't work out according to your plans? I can promise you this was not in Joseph's plans. This would have been the last thing he wanted. I mean, what do you do? Do we look for an intervention in some way? Your relationships? Families? I mean, after all, how much of your life has gone exactly the way that you wanted it to? What do you do when you don't? Or when it doesn't? I guarantee you Joseph didn't, didn't go to bed one night thinking, okay, God, I know you're going to show up in the middle of the night and everything's going to work out. He was looking to divorce her. I mean, do we look for ways that God might intervene? I would argue that God is full of plan Bs. The need for Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection, His witness, the model of how to love and treat someone, the power of a suffering servant, obedience even in the face of opposition. Every single thing that Jesus did was an illustration of God's intervention to human depravity. I would argue, yes, this does matter. That's what I tell my children. It says, when things don't go exactly the way you want them to, do you look for the possibility of God intervening? Even in ways that you think are impossible. Because sometimes they are not what you think. Some of them are even better than what you could imagine. Did you hear the scripture lesson? Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Every last one of us needs a God that intervenes. 
Because not everything's going to work according to your plans. And we're going to need a plan B. When that day comes, you have a friend in Joseph. One of the things I love about communion is uh, you hold symbols. Bread and, and, and juice or a cup. It's not that they're there's anything great in and of themselves. There's something very common. But what they stand for is a means by which God intervenes into our life. At least the wholeness. And so I invite you to bow your heads with me as we prepare our hearts to receive this gift. Oh God, we are first to admit that we are in need of plan B's all the time. That there are things that don't work out the way that we want them to. Sometimes it's at our hands. Sometimes it's at the hands of another person. It's a part of what we do in receiving this gift of communion. We, we confess our need. Some of those are things that we've done. Some, we didn't know that we were doing them. But they've missed the mark nonetheless. And so part of what we do is pray with an open heart, Lord, forgive us. And then as we partake of this, there's something about eating and drinking these elements and then going out into the world and so that our life becomes a witness, a witness of Jesus Christ, His death, His resurrection, and His coming again. And so we pray by the power of your Spirit that you would consecrate these elements for us. That they would become the body and blood of Christ for this purpose, that we might become the body of Christ redeemed by his blood as a witness for the world. Our prayer is a prayer for unity. Make us one in you so that together our words and our actions Lift up your name. And we pray this in your name. Amen.